Awesome. So welcome to the second episode of the new Fangled Lawyer podcast. I have um, the awesome pleasure to introduce our guest today is Natalie Netzel, like pretzel. Um, and uh, Natalie, um, I'll let you introduce yourself and what you do in your day-to-day life and as an attorney. So I'll turn it over to you first. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. This is great. Uh, so I am an associate professor of law and the director of our clinical legal education program at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. And so I kind of do all of the things there. I teach you know, first year crim law. Uh, for the past seven years, I have supervised law students who have represented parents and relatives and sometimes youth in the child welfare system in a holistic and an interdisciplinary way. Um, And I'm really interested in attorney mental health and attorney well-being and uh, law student mental health and law student well-being and then just trauma-informed practices more generally. And and how did you get there? Like, how did you get to the point where you're like, I care about like law student well-being? And attorney well-being. What in yeah. your journey? What what in your journey led you there? Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of things led to my care in that. So before going to law school, I got a master's degree in counseling and was licensed as a school counselor. So just operating generally in the mental health space um, has kind of been a part of what I've done long before my experience in legal education, but really caring about it. I mean, some of it is, you know, personal and having some of my own mental health struggles that have come up as a part of um, being a lawyer and maybe having law school reinforce some anxious thinking patterns in myself and kind of bring out law law school where 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 mental health issues uh, are nurtured to bloom. Yeah, exactly. And then it's watching students go through that process and having for a long time, a lot of one on one conversations with students about their struggles and just realizing like, oh, this is a much bigger problem that we're not exactly talking about or maybe we're not talking about in the right way uh, because it is really isolating. Well, you know, just the norms of our profession really kind of feed the bear in terms of mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And so, you know, with your own viewpoint, how do you see things changing at the law school level when it comes to well-being and mental health and support and all those functions? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And I feel really hopeful in this regard Mm -hmm. and that law schools are paying so much more attention now to mental health and well-being. Um, and I mean, students are demanding more attention on these issues than at least occurred when during my own law school experience. And you know, there's a pretty dedicated group of law professors around the country to working on issues related to balance and well-being in legal education. And, you know, I would say in my own school. I mean, they let me teach there and they let me teach about these things and have these conversations. As a part of first year crim law, we also are talking about trauma and trauma informed practices. And as a part of, yeah. Which is really fascinating because the criminal law experience is very traumatizing. Yes. I mean, I, I 
clerked for a judge in Cook County in Chicago. And the, that's the busiest criminal court in the country. Yeah. In uh, one of the classic fishbowl courts. Um, and she oversaw a recid- uh, specialty court called Wings for recidivist prostitutes. And it, the whole idea was that it would link up uh, these women with social services, job training, childcare, parenting, all, all, you know, housing, you name it, all the things that create stability. And one of the most striking things about that experience was how um, traumatic it was. So many of these women were forced into prostitution at like when they were children because their support network were also in that. Um, and it's such a missed piece, I think, in, well, criminal court, but in court in general, is that people are coming to court with all these different experiences. Yeah, totally. I mean, in criminal law and child protection and, you know, some aspects of immigration and some aspects of family, like people are interacting with our legal system who have trauma histories, who also have experienced some kind of trauma that has maybe led to that interaction with the legal system Mm -hmm. or participated in some kind of trauma that has led to the interaction with the legal system. And then our legal system and interacting with our legal system can also be re-traumatizing or trauma-inducing in that it's like the system has so much control over what's going to happen in your Mm -hmm. life. It strips power away from people and things are out of their control. So there's like trauma at every intersection. And of course, as attorneys, when we're exposed to that, we're at risk of vicarious trauma. Oh, 100,000%. It's fascinating. Um, I was just uh, at another thing where there was a panel and they were talking about Zoom court. Um, And one of the main takeaways was that the reason why Zoom court doesn't work is that people don't have fear of the court. What What do you think about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, I think that I have some, I would have some other questions about what does it mean that Zoom court isn't working and for who? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, have seen certainly that there are times in child protection cases where everyone being together in the same space, like may be helpful at resolving a case or may be helpful, you know, to provide support to a client. At the same time, I think for some clients, court may feel slightly less traumatizing when they're not there in the space, when they get to be in their own space, in their own comfort. comfort. Mm. And they're not worried about even some of the basic stuff, like, you know, making sure that they're paying for their parking or like what it means to like get and to be in that space. And it is easier for them to access court and where, you know, I wish I could be there with them. And sometimes I still get to be there sitting next to them, just not in a courthouse. Um, So yeah, I guess I'm curious what, you know, <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah. uh, what it's shown is that, um, people that are victims, right. Feel comfortable, um, being able to, and supported, not physically being present with the person who they're accused of having harmed them. Yeah. Um, I think the takeaway was that the, uh, really the people navigating 
these systems as the accused don't take it as seriously right that that they almost see it as informal not as um there's not as much kind of deference right and respect um because it's done in virtually as opposed to physically being present in a physical courtroom um so i think it's just this fascinating uh kind of space that we're in right now as attorneys are these intersections of space yeah and you know and that i think is interesting when i think about um you know court and the trauma that it can cause i think about you know trauma it can cause to to victims being involved i also have a hard time sometimes separating victim and offender in that mm. people who commit offenses have experienced some kind of trauma that then or more often than not that also kind of factors and plays in. And I think that, you know, there's something to be said for the the trauma of offending that, you know, mm -hmm. I believe people are good and want to be good and do and do good things. And sometimes we all have bad days. And in our criminal justice system and our child sure. protection system, we catch sure. people on their in their worst moments. Mm -hmm. And you know, being trauma informed is a part of recognizing that too, and seeing just like the the full humanity in the people who are or in people generally, and in the people who are interacting with our systems. Yeah, and it's like if any if anyone you you pluck them out of time at their lowest point and defined them by that lowest point. Yeah, um, in child protection, we put a yeah. microscope on that. Lowest, lowest point and then don't see all of the other strengths that exist for that person uh and you know people aren't an either or it's not a good or bad and like we're just all shaped by our experiences and i don't think our court systems bring out the best in most people if anyone with how they're set up and how they're structured. I what I say is stress is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And when people are stressed, they say and do things that they don't even mean. Yeah. Um, and you know, when faced with these uh experiences, you know, even as attorneys, sometimes how we show up in those situations is we almost deny ourselves our own humanity and don't let us feel the sorrow or the sadness of that situation. We just see it as an outcome. Yeah, I would say, especially as attorneys and like, it's, you know, we're taught, we spend so much time in law school building these legal skills, like, you know, statutory interpretation and legal writing and analysis. And all of that is really important and really critical. And at the same time, there's just historically has not been enough focus on the emotional aspects of law, on how to carry emotion, on how to care for oneself while caring for others. And um, and just, you know, on examining the impact that being a lawyer has on the attorney. There's just and we're doing more of that now. but. It takes it takes uh, it takes a lot to 
um, change habitual norms and normative standards of how is a practice, right? A large group of people, you're essentially trying to move a glacier. Yeah. Um, and so how in your own work, so you've been doing this work where you're really, it's up in your face. What are some different strategies or skills that you've developed or outlets that you've gone to to help deal with these traumatizing situations? Yeah, I mean, I've, I feel like I've done all of the things and <laughs> spend a lot of time researching, writing, yeah, thinking yeah. about trying to put stuff out there, trying to help the next generation of lawyers be better prepared and in trying to help the next generation of lawyers be better prepared, prepared for um, the vicarious trauma and, you know, that and mental health issues that may come up as a part of their work that in turn helps me. So like, I'm very self-interested in my academic, in my <laughs> academic work, but, shouldn't, but, but is that such a bad thing? No, I don't no. think so. I think that that is like what I'm trying to teach is we all need to be a little bit more self-interested in our well-being for, mm. for these reasons to be better. I mean, just like to be good to ourselves and also to be better at showing up. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, some of the work has been like accepting my own limitations and time constraints and like mm. kind of recognizing that I can't do everything all at once. And so I need to make choices about what I do. Um, healthy, you know, dose of therapy and prescribed medication to like help out as I'm untangling some of what I've seen, um, you know, and just, and then just really being able to, to bring that in an authentic way into a law school space and into a space working with other attorneys to kind of hopefully work together with people who also care about this to like co-create some solutions. Um, it's, it's like, um, you're processing it out and in the open. Yeah, I think that is, <laughs> for, you... better, for better or worse, that is, that is how I live. That is how I live my life. I um, mean, that's, that's, but there's something to that, to showing that, you know, this is uh, so, not something to run from, not something to disconnect from and, you know, separate yourself from, but to integrate as part of your experience to be able to, you know, not only allow yourself the space to process it, but share with others like, hey, this can be part of your experience and you can um, have feelings about it, Yeah. right? And, and some of those feelings can be that, you know, um, being a part of the system is not joyful, is not yeah. happy. Yeah. Um, but darn, it could be fulfilling. Yeah. So yeah. what do you, what do you think, you know, in, or how have you experienced like fulfillment in your career doing this work? Yeah. I mean, I love my clients, uh, you know, the parents and the relatives who find themselves kind of subjected to the child welfare system and, um, who are really wonderful, incredible people who aren't always given the benefit of the doubt that mm. that others are given and being able to work with and connect with them and see their strengths and build on their strength. And that is in 
incredibly fulfilling to get to have that source of connection. And um, yeah, to I mean, to get to help put forth a different narrative about them. Really yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the word love. What, yeah. what, what um, does love have to do with the law and client care? You don't hear that very often. I love my clients. And you say that not in the sense of kind of like, I um, enjoy working with the clients, but you love the clients almost in light of their humanity and their situation and their personalities. You cut yeah. through that all. Yeah, I mean, or maybe I just see it, see it differently, but like, they're just, you know, once you get past like the surface level, this is the bad thing someone said they've done. There's, there's really, they're just people. They're not, you know, my clients are not different from me in terms of we share and have the same humanity. Mm -hmm. And so they're people that I get to connect with. And it's true. I mean, there's some clients I certainly like more than other clients just like you know, <laughs> sure. but that, that doesn't that doesn't mean make you love them less which no, is really just, which is a really unique perspective i i can't say i've ever come across another attorney in natalie who would say i love my clients for their humanity well that's sad <laughs> <laughs> isn't it but it, i mean but it's but it's but it's part of I think what drives kind of this uh, dissatisfaction with being an attorney or this misery or this kind of uh, sorrow, this disconnect, we, we, we see clients as other, right? Or see them as their problem, see them as a problem, right? They, yeah. they get conflated that the client is the problem. Um, and so kind of talk about how do you navigate um, the, you know, some of the clients that, you know, might be difficult, but you still love them anyway. How do you navigate yeah. that? I mean, so when I'm working with people, it's not because it's very rare that it's because something really great is going on in their life. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's recognizing that when people are going through things, they aren't necessarily showing up as the best version of their self. But, you know, I think it's like kind of, we don't need people to be the best versions of their self all the time. Mm -hmm. That is like unrealistic for us to have that expectation of mm -hmm. others as humans. And so, yeah, there's times where I'll have clients who will get mad at me and send a not very kind email and but it's realizing and recognizing that like I'm a safe enough person for them that they feel like mm. they can come and say that to me and mm. then working through that and realizing like that might not be how they want to be treating me on their on their best day but they're going through some stuff and they can't exactly go yell at the judge about the decision that's made <laughs> and like they I, could certainly try they could certainly some of them can, wish um, yeah but i don't yeah. want them to do that in sure. my own care sure. for them is like i want them to get mad be mad and like have that anger within our own relationship mm. so then we can figure out how to come together to um how to come together to 
fix whatever problem that they're facing or put them in the, in the best light when we're in those other situations. And everyone deserves people like that. And I am like duty bound to my clients. We all are duty bound to our clients. And part of that duty is, you know, I think if not loving them, like showing up with that compassion and that respect for their humanity, even when they're at their worst moments. So how, so how does a, an attorney go about creating like a safe space? It, so some of it is, is pretty simple. Um, not all of it. And it's, you know, recognizing that simple, can, but it doesn't mean easy. Yeah. You can create, you know, it's like kind of creating the safest space possible and not that there's like this ultimate, like perfect safe space. So it's just like doing your best. And some of it is things like being establishing trust and being transparent with clients. And that is, you know, if you say you're going to do something, do that. Respond to emails or let them know like when they're going to get a response. Some of it is, you know, taking the time to really listen and sit with some problems and feelings and not shy away from those problems and feelings. And not like you're going to go out and be someone's counselor, but it's like if someone is emotionally dysregulated, you can't really do your job as an attorney, like talking to them in that moment. So it's, you know, physically like taking a pause and just a deep breath. Very to simple. Slow, I... To slow things down a little bit, to help clients, you know, ease ease into that. Some of it is if things get too escalated, saying like, hey, can we like take a break? Would you like some water? Kind of mm. just, and it's like being intentional about those little things. And not just pushing past it. Yeah, it matters. Or ignore or ignoring it. Yeah. Um, or trying to uh, manipulate um, the situation or trying to just talk past it. It's, it's giving things the opportunity to just breathe. Yeah. Giving, giving a little bit of space thinking, how am I, you know, making sure my client is feeling valued and seen and heard? How am I communicating to my client, like my respect for their humanity um, in mm. maybe even more so in just like the, in presence and how you show up with them than like, you know, saying I respect and value <laughs> you. Like, just how do you like use yourself as a person, as a tool to, to help clients in, and when it's genuine and authentic, I think that that helps them to feel safe in, in their relationship with me or in their relationship mm. with other attorneys. So Natalie, how did you get here? Like you, you went to law school, like all the rest of us. Yep. What was your law school experience like? Was it different? Did you have like a different like point of view or like different outcome that set you on this path? Like going into law school? Cause yeah. so much, so, cause a lot of the studies have come out and you and I have talked about this before of like, you know, law school kind of, uh, facilitates a lot of the issues that attorneys face with well-being. Yep. But it seems like, and I'm not saying like, you know, you're perfect, I'm perfect, but like, what about your experience led you to kind of show up in this way? Yeah. So, I mean, 
it's interesting. I never, well, I always like kind of thought law school sounded fun or cool, but never really wanted to go and never really wanted to be a lawyer. And actually I, um, you know, wound up taking the LSAT as a present for my grandpa who always wanted someone to be in our family to be a lawyer. And I didn't have anything to give him for his 90th birthday. Cause like, what do you, give a 90 year old who like has everything that they want to need did you give them like, like a card or did you like wrap something for them or is just, yeah, no, just like printed off the like registration for the LSAT. <laughs> I, love, like, I love that happy 90th birthday grandpa yeah. uh i am going to take the lsat because you've always wanted someone in our family to do that and i guess we'll see what happens and so then i took the lsat and i did all right and then he got really excited about touring law schools because again he always really wanted to go to law school. So we vicarious, went, vicarious joy. The other yeah, kind the of yeah, the vicarious, the vicarious joy. So we toured some law schools, and uh, then I loved the idea of being a school counselor and didn't like that I in Minnesota what didn't feel like I was getting enough like student interaction within the role and was like well, I don't want to just like standardize test kids forever so there's no um, humanity in that yeah so then i was like okay well i guess like i might need something else to do so huh law school okay we'll give it a we'll give it a try so in some ways it you know was really just fulfilling someone else's dream that mm -hmm. got me here which is like for better or worse i guess um and but you know the counselor side of me never left and that person was developed first and that lens you know went with me through law school and um yeah fascinating is i wonder if i i'd be fascinated to know a study of people who always want to be attorneys because there's i think if i'm going to just simplify things there are a group of people that growing up always want to be attorneys they were told you should be an attorney and that was their single point focus Right. They went to undergrad. They were pre-law. Yep. They went there to me. Then there's those of us like you and me and other people that kind of just like almost like are like, well, yeah, this like law thing sounds like pretty okay. Yeah. And, and we're achievers and we achieved. But even in law school, like my law school experience, like I didn't put any pressure on myself. Like yeah. if I got if I did well, I did well. But I, I always kind of felt like I reached a point. I'm like, well, I know enough, which I, which I think kind of informs then quite frankly, like how I am as an attorney, like I uh, just was okay with, I don't want to say like just enough, yeah, but how to reframe that now kind of I'm heading into having completed my first decade of practice is that like, I am enough you know yeah and, that, and that's and that seems kind of like with you like even in law school you're like well i am me and that's good enough so that i love i love that that is the me version that you are seeing now which means that maybe i've actually done some work and accomplished something <laughs> because i would say that i actually part of like i took you know i took the lsat as a gift to my grandpa thinking I was going to do terrible on it. Mm. I never thought that I was going mm. to be good at law school. In fact, my goal in law school was just don't fail. 
like that was I was like okay like keep whatever scholarship they're giving me and just like don't fail because like you're pretty dumb you don't belong here so just uh, impo imposter si imposter si syndrome yeah I mean really and then it turns out that the perfectionist tendencies that I have and uh you know wound up that not failing actually wound up being like really mm -hmm. succeeding which mm -hmm. was a shock to me and mm -hmm. so law school was pretty good to me and that I was like oh I thought I was too dumb to be here and I'm like actually doing okay. <laughs> I'm so I, self I'm so self-critical of myself. Yeah. yeah. Any yeah. amount of success is almost yep. a shock, almost yep. a surprise. That's yeah. And so uh yeah, but then it was like once I like actually demonstrated some success, that's when I started to unravel because I was like, oh well, how do I how do I keep this up? Because clearly I can. <laughs> clearly I still don't belong here, and someone's gonna finally figure it out. And like, what am I doing teaching law school? And that's maybe where some of the you know, the anxiety and the anxious thinking patterns and stuff really got fueled, and then caused me some problems mm. once I got into my career. That now you know, part of my goal is to help give students better tools. To, to deal with that so they won't have those same problems that you've given, so you've, given a, you've given a narrative to it you've given a voice to it yeah and, and and you've been okay with saying it you seem very comfortable with just saying this was my experience yeah and so I how, think how did you get to this point have you always been this way um no i don't think i've always been this way but i think that being a professor is just such a like there's so much power in the professor and student relationship and i don't know that i've earned it in any way shape or form but like well, of course students, but of course not because your success cannot be your own loss yeah i guess <laughs> Law students like look up to professors and it was recognizing that when i would say stuff or talk about mental health even a little bit even in kind of like cutesy sanitized like veiled ways that like the impact on law students being like oh so i'm not alone in thinking i don't belong here or i'm not or having those thoughts of i don't belong or i'm not alone in thinking that i just and, and in these struggles and then as i saw as i would have those conversations one-on-one -on -one, it was like okay i have a platform where i can shine some light on this and to the extent that I myself, I, I only get to speak for myself, but I know a lot of other attorneys who have succeeded and done well despite having similar sorts of issues. Giving a voice to that, I think, helps other people feel a little bit more normal and validated in their experience. And so, you know, I joked earlier about like going through this process of doing it outwardly for me. And really it's like, whatever I'm saying is what I was working on a year ago. And I get to the point where I can package it nicely and talk about it in a way that I think might help others. And certainly it's like incredibly vulnerable still, and there's risks that come with it, but they're calculated risks that I take because there's really something to be said for other people getting help sooner or earlier. What, what do you think are the risks of being vulnerable as an attorney? Oh, I make people uncomfortable with this stuff all the time. <laughs> like, How does that manifest? Like when someone's uncomfortable? Um, I mean, I think that it's a really uncomfortable truth that the status quo of our profession causes harm and we talk about it in terms of statistics because statistics are like easy to look at and sanitized and we can like see those numbers i think that 
we're good at talking about the issue in terms of statistics, we're a little less comfortable with kind of the mess or the reality that is like, oh, I am like needing a, to take a break because I can't do stuff right now, like because my mental health is struggling or and that I think can get messy because um, it's hard to grapple with the harm that we cause to each other by participating in the profession and in legal education in the way that it currently exists. Mm. Well, and, and, attorney, and attorneys are inherently uh, risk averse. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways and like to have a uh, roadmap, yep. right? Precedent. Yep. Um, we like forms. We like systems. Yeah. And there's no humanity is not built that way. It's it's muddy and it's messy, and the way we interact is, you know, a lot of times less than clear. And people, how we even see evidence. If I'm going to use a kind of a a law nerd uh, kind of platform, is that even how people see evidence, visual evidence, is very different. Because what we bring into it is our own preconceived notions of, you know, how things should go. Yeah. <laughs> and well, so to strip ourselves of kind of all of this and just see things as they are, we like, like you said, statistics. We like, where's the evidence? And, you know, a lot of the evidence, particularly in this space, is hidden. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's, it's obvious, but... Um, a lot of people go to great lengths to make sure it never sees the light of day. Yeah, it's scary to talk about. It's hard to talk about. And in some respects, like once it's out there, it is a bell that cannot be unrung. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think we still need to keep having these conversations anyways. And like, it's it's scary and weird and messy, but like, by talking about it, we take away some of the power that mm-hmm. it has. We take away the fear. We we normalize it. We and um, yeah, and that, that you know, you give up a little bit of control when you engage in those sorts of conversations. And yeah, evidence is all about control. Who, what, what gets presented to the jury, <laughs> and in what ways, and what are the rules, and how are we going to control? How are we going to control mm-hmm. that? And that's it's not. Power, it's like the power. It's like the power of. Uh, perception and narrative. Yeah. Um, and that feeling of when someone else is in control of your narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I think for a long time, when we've talked about this as lawyers, we've always looked at like the rock bottom scenario, like mm-hmm. that here is the person who had mm-hmm. something really bad, had the mental health crisis or the substance use crisis that led to these kind of really bad or disastrous consequences for them. And now they've done like, a work. Like mo- most ethics programming is yeah. like, here is the top 10 worst ethics opinions uh, from last year. Right. When most of the struggle happens well before then. Right. And so when you can get to it before then, when you can talk about it before then, and like, you know, I've you know had mental health struggles, but I've never hit a rock bottom, right? It's just like the kind of messy, like this. these days didn't go as well as I would have hoped that they would. And I'm struggling. And then I'm like, 
getting some help and figuring it out and like doing better. And it's needing to see that. But I think that there's a kind of the fear of the like, well, or the not recognizing exactly that it is a problem when you haven't hit rock bottom. But if we can, mm -hmm. if we can get to it there, if we can shift it to a focus of building well-being and focusing on well-being and addressing mental health issues that come up in law like early and we do that by recognizing them and talking about them and having the support for things early uh i think that we can you know avoid some of the more disastrous consequences and just like normalize that you can be a really like badass attorney doing great work and struggle sometimes because again like <laughs> and cry humanity. and cry and and feel sad and yeah. sorrowful and, and like, melancholic sit with, and sit with the darkness of the work and be in the darkness of the work because like it shouldn't mm -hmm. always be happy we just need to have skills to approach and engage with and connect with the darkness of some of the work because that, that's part of the like whole human experience is to feel like you failed sometimes. Yeah, and to like have stuff be a little rocky, have stuff be a little messy, to like have things like sad shit is sad. <laughs> you you can say shit, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should listen to what uh, um, Sarah said in the last podcast. So okay, you, cool. You, you're you're fine. This I, um, I I meant to mark it as explicit. So um, this is yeah. Like, oh, like worse. yeah, you can say, yeah, you can say much worse. So, um, shit that I'm pretty sure you can say on the radio now. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, um, accepting and acknowledging. And I think that maybe there's some space here in legal education of, um, how to fail successfully. Like how, how do you say, you know, that was, didn't, you know, the outcome is not what I expected. Um, this didn't meet my expectations. I didn't meet my own expectations. The situation to me for however you want to define failure was a failure. And it's how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, and still have fulfillment and still yeah. feel as though you, you are, um, doing what you're called to do. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's so much, you know, the great research out there and great writing, you know, even in the context of legal education about growth mindset. Mm. And that is a mindset that can be developed and cultivated. And so it's like, what did I learn from this experience that went absolutely not the way that I wanted it to go? Sure. Uh, and the recognition that, like, even just the act of not knowing and not getting set right. So like it's, we've got these perfectionist tendencies where we want to like get it right on day one. If you could come into law school and get it right on day one, that would be really weird. It's supposed to be challenging. Challenge is supposed to help you grow. And there's like stress. And then there's like a you stress, like good stress that you can grow from. And some of that though is like letting go of some of the perfectionist tendencies that get cultivated in law school, focusing on the growth mindset, not seeing everything in terms of success or failures. It's redefining wins and just looking at every opportunity in terms of like the joy of what you might be learning or the, the joy of being wrong. Cause when you're wrong, that means you have an opportunity to learn something new and how do we, yeah cultivate that within legal education.
how can we have more joy in the practice of law? I'm all about, I, I, I say all the time, it's like how I practice joy in the practice of law. Like, what do you think it would be different ways that we could experience more joy collectively? Um, if that's even possible. <laughs> I mean, I think it's possible. I think it's going to take a lot of unlearning. I think that Man, I don't know. This is actually a really tough one. I think I might be stumped with how do we have more joy, mostly because I'm just like, I'm so stuck in the like, how do we like sit with and experience like the darkness and the sadness of it all and embrace that as like a part of the experience. And so maybe it's just that like joy is great and I love having joy and I love when I have joyful moments in law, but like maybe we have more joy when joy doesn't become like the fixed the sixth point of like just trying to achieve joy and happiness all the time and just kind of more trying to like be with the humanity of it all. Um, it's really fascinating. I just finished reading uh, Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet, where she talks uh, about sorrow and why we gravitate and cry like when we listen to, but also feel like connection and happiness. Yeah. When we listen to just like sad music. And it's really fascinating of like, as humans, even how we experience like something ending, like a transition, yeah. it really just allows us to see kind of the preciousness of everything. Yeah. And when something is precious, it's, you know, both fragile, it can be the kind of happiest thing, but also the saddest thing. Like both my grandmas just passed away in the last year and it's like this beautiful sorrow, right? Yeah. Like you feel this like um, overwhelming sense of kind of the happiness in which they live and the sorrow that they have departed. Yeah. Um, and in the law, <clears throat> in attorneys, it's a lot of times we just see kind of loss. Um or like my client lost yeah as it's really missed opportunity to connect yeah right with your client and and say like you know um or not even say just be right yep. and identify the humanness of the experience yeah um and not try to even uh you know uh, deny your client the ability to feel what they're going to feel, right? Yeah. A Some people for getting divorced, let's say, right? That client is both experiencing the joy if they want to get divorced, but also the sadness. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's just, yeah, shifting this, the paradigm around winning and losing. Not everything's winning and losing. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, what you're saying is really resonating in one of like the coolest projects I've worked on in one of the coolest organizations I've worked with in the past two years is an organization called Bellis. And Bellis has support groups for women whose children are being parented by others, meaning women who've lost either parental rights or custody through court proceedings. 
and now are no longer providing day-to-day care for their for their children. And Bellis is not a legal organization. They just provide support group to these women who get totally and completely forgotten about in our system. It's like once a TPR happens or once custody is transferred, everyone moves on. And then like the woman is just Mm. left to deal with this experience. I've been so humbled to have the opportunity to go in and talk with these women about their experience through the illegal lens, helping Mm -hmm. them understand, well, like, here's what happened, like legally. Here's kind of the current status of your legal rights. Here's what options you do or don't have moving forward. And also like, you know, here, and and just sitting with them in that experience without much of a goal or an outcome. It's like Mm -hmm. brief legal advice Mm -hmm. that, also like has elements of support, but it's like using the law as my legal knowledge as a tool for healing and being able to be with people who otherwise just aren't, aren't seen or really valued by our legal system anymore. There's a lot of comfort in it just acknowledgement. Yeah. And I wish attorneys got to do more of that. Just uh, understanding. Just to, yeah, to understand, to be there, to sit with that and to really be with that humanity um because yeah loss is a huge part of our legal system and not like losses in winning and losing but losses mm-hmm. in like there is something lost and it's like a death yeah I mean, kind of yeah i mean, I mean the it, way it, the the way in which you lived before uh, for a lot of people it's like has ended yeah and i mean for these women it's like ambiguous loss you know, it's the loss because you're grieving, but it's also the like, but you're grieving someone or something, a relationship that is with a person who's still alive more often than not. And how do you grieve when there's not really a roadmap to grieve that kind of loss? And um, yeah, it's been a really, a really humbling experience. Yeah, it's, that's really fascinating that you bring that up. I've really been thinking about how, the role of attorney um, could um, transform into that of like a doula. Yeah. Like you're, you're like a guide, right? You're a support. Yeah. You are um, the, the calm presence. Yeah. The listening ear, the command of the room, if need be right. There's death doulas, there's birthing doulas, right? Yeah, that's how we see it in this context. Well, it's like uh, as attorneys, um, I think really it could be just part of um, this process. It's just reframing what our role is and how we interact with attorney with with our clients or other attorneys or the legal profession broadly as more of kind of quiet guides. Yeah, well, and it's interesting now as you're talking about that, and you know, I'm thinking about having had like my own doula who was amazing when I gave birth. Um, but it's like, you know, the doula is someone who's like acting alongside the medical Mm. professional who's not necessarily a medical professional, but has the knowledge. And I'm like, do people, and maybe they do, and maybe this is going to be like my new job, like to (laughs) be the attorney who helps someone navigate the legal system and their relationship with their attorney and like, right. To like be the person Mm. like alongside helping navigate this because it is such a often 
emotional and challenging experience that you might need someone with expertise to help to help you be able to engage with other legal professionals and with systems. That is really, that's really fascinating. There, there you go, Natalie. I just, I just uh, discovered your calling. Legal doula. <laughs> legal doula. Natalie Netzel, the legal doula. Well. Okay, give me five years. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll be there to hopefully yeah. support you along the way. So, you heard it here first. Yeah, we heard it here first. Uh, ground uh, Groundbreaking news. Um, so I'm going to leave with this. So what do you think? So one of my focuses, obviously, of this podcast um, and kind of the mission I'm on, I suppose my calling is in like attorney narrative. And when I'm calling the newfangled lawyer, yep. like what is the, uh, path forward here? So what do you think it means to be a newfangled lawyer? I mean, I'm maybe still like caught on our, the last bit of our conversation, but I think that newfangled lawyers use their legal knowledge to promote healing first, and then everything else falls into place. But like, falls into place. But how how are we as lawyers promoting, encouraging, cultivating, empowering healing? Because I think that that's not only going to be good for the clients that we serve, but it's a way healthier way. Even self-healing. Way even better. Even self-healing. Yeah. You know, attorney in a very broad sense, healing. Yeah. Inward yeah. to be outward. Yeah. Well, Natalie, this was awesome. This was a I great joy that. to have this conversation. Um, and so... This is kind of the fun part where I just go and ramble on and say, I'm going to hit stop recording and I may or may not cut it out at the end. So cool. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so we'll keep talking, but I'm going to hit stop recording. Sounds good. <laughs>